7, we'll be starting in verse 15, let me tell you a story, a real story, about a man named William Morgan. He was a student at Oxford University in 1728, and he was serious about following Jesus, and he soon joined with some friends at at school, uh, Robert Kirkham and Charles Wesley, and formed this group of just basically accountability to get together to to strengthen each other. John Wesley joined them, and the group grew to be over 25 people or more. Uh, It included some very important people in history, uh, like George Whitfield and James Hervé. They were dubbed the Holy Club, and they were very serious about devoting every aspect of their day to Jesus. They rose at 4 a.m. or so. They had an hour or so of reading and prayer. They planned out every hour of the day. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. They dedicated Saturdays to preparing for Sunday. They visited the poor and the imprisoned. They discussed books, good Christian books and classics. Uh, they, they finished every day by rigorous evaluation. They asked themselves these 15 questions. I don't know if you can see all these questions, but I'll go through them quickly. Have you been fervent in private prayer today? Have you used the stated hours of prayer, morning, noon, and and evening? Have you spontaneously prayed at least every hour of every day? After or before a conversation, have you thought about how it contributed to God's glory? After any blessing, did you give thanks to God? Did you plan the business of the day? Have you remembered God's presence in everything? Have you uh, been zealous and active in doing what is good? Number nine, have you been humble uh, and cheerful and affable in everything you said or did? Have you been proud or vain or enviable of others at any point? Um, Have you thought of God in eating and drinking and and have you been temperate in your sleep? Have you taken time to give thanks according to William Law's rules of, of living? Have you been diligent in your studies? Have you thought or spoken unkindly to anyone? Have you confessed all your sins? Every day they would go through this at the end of the day. Now, by the way, you might have caught the title of the message. It's good enough? Question mark. And we're going to see that this story relates to, of course, Ecclesiastes and this idea of what is good enough. And, and so we may listen to this story of William Morgan and this club and admire this sort of dedication. And it certainly can be practiced in a healthy and fruitful way, but there's always a danger of an exhausted list like this, if pursued with the wrong mindset. And from what we know, sadly, William Morgan was unable to practice this sort of rigorous pursuit and good living in a healthy way. In 1732, he grew sick in his ascetic and rigorous pursuit of making sure every moment and every thought be for Jesus. His body gave out, and so did his mind. He suffered hallucinations and delusions and suicidal tendencies, and he died, a young man of 20, in August 1732. This sent shockwaves, of course, to the Holy Club. His life illustrates a very important point that we're going to see in our passage. We can never be good enough. No one is good enough. So trust in God alone. No one is is good enough, so trust in God alone. This core truth, I believe, would have rescued William Morgan from a tragic end. And more important for us today, it can rescue us 
from a tragic life. We need this truth. We need the truth we're going to see here in Ecclesiastes. So let's pray. Because I need this, you need this, and God wants to help us understand and grasp and be transformed by this core truth. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for how Your Word is life-giving and true. Both together. And I pray as we look at this passage and as I seek to teach it and proclaim it, Lord, that You would speak to us and that this truth would impact us. And grant us the life that is real life in You. Protecting us from dangers on the right and the left. To walk in that which is truly life. We pray You'd be glorified through this. So we would see better who You are. And love You more. And love one another more as a result. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's start with chapter 7, verse 15. The preacher says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is a good thing that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found. But a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Again, we can sum up this passage that no one is good enough, so trust in God alone. No one is good enough, so trust in God alone. We're going to take a journey with the preacher as he considers this and as he probes uh, life as he observes it and experiences it, and as he learns this key truth and conveys it to us. It's important to, uh, once again uh, to consider how Ecclesiastes fits into the whole of Scripture. Uh, it's not meant to be taken in an absolute solitary way, but to come alongside the entirety of Scripture. Ecclesiastes and the preacher's words are corrective to a naive or narrow view of how things work in God's universe. 
He's kind of a godly cynic for us. And Ecclesiastes is the godly cynic's guide to the universe. It points out the things that are often the things that are the exception, the things that puzzle us, the things that may tempt us to go off in a life of of full-on ungodly cynicism. And the preacher is unafraid to address those things, but through those things point us back to God. And thus it's the godly cynic's guide to the universe. And we need such a God because we live in the same universe. We live under the sun just as the preacher of Ecclesiastes does. So with that qualification and understanding of how this functions, let's dive in. He starts out in verse 15 and says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his, unright- in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is the opposite of what we would expect. It's the opposite of what we see elsewhere in the Scripture. Because many times the Bible tells us the righteous, righteous person prolongs and enriches his or her life through righteousness. There is a blessing and there is a prolonging and an enriching of life through righteousness. And wickedness shortens and impoverishes our lives. And, and that's seen throughout Scripture. So there's many verses like Proverbs 11, 5-8. through 8. It says the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. So that's one verse among many like this. In Deuteronomy 6, speaking to the Old Testament people in the covenant, says uh, as it implores them to walk, and this it says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. And we see this, again, throughout Scripture. These promises, righteousness has a reward. Tends towards a longer and richer life. And wickedness has a consequence of a shortened and impoverished life. This is true. And this is generally true. But it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. And again, Ecclesiastes points out the exceptions that occur in all of our lives and sometimes even predominate in our lives. It addresses them honestly, like Psalm 73, by the way. So Ecclesiastes isn't isn't the only place. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says more or less what the preacher is saying here in chapter 7. He says this, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The psalmist, along with the preacher, points out that sometimes it works exactly in the opposite way we would expect. Either in individuals' lives and in even certain contexts and cultures, it seems that the opposite is the rule. The exception is the rule. And so this begs the question, right? Why try to be good? 
Why pursue righteousness? And it's meant to, to shape our understanding and correct us because there can be this tendency that I do what's good because I get good results. We can have a formulaic approach to life. If I follow these good principles, if I'm good enough, then I get these things. A plus B leads to C and X, Y, Z and so forth. There's a formula we can follow. And this is a corrective to that. It's a correction to say no. There's no guarantee here. Yes, there are principles and there are ways that things tend to happen. God's in control of His universe. It's not that the opposite always happens, right? But there are exceptions. And so if your motivator to do the right is simply the formula, and if you live in light of everything that goes on in your life, expecting this formula to work, you're in for trouble. You're in for real trouble. I believe that this often happens to Christians. They set themselves up for great disappointment. And I believe this is often the reason that many abandon the faith. They start following Jesus, but they have this hidden expectation that if I do it right, I'll get X, Y, and Z. And when we don't get X, Y, and Z, and when we get the opposite of X, Y, and Z, it can lead to saying, forget it then, I'm done. I, and perhaps you know people personally. I have a friend who who was a leader in his church, an example to many, but when his son was born with a birth defect that God didn't heal through prayer, he walked away. And he took on an atheistic approach to science, believing that science would have the cure for this birth defect. A false dichotomy, but nevertheless his conclusion. He walked away because he didn't get what he felt like he had paid for. Be careful to not pursue what is right and good because you're trying to control things and produce favorable results. There's more important motivators for righteousness. We'll get to that. The preacher goes on then to say in verse 16, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And you're probably thinking, whoa, what is he saying there? Saying that I should be somewhere between too wicked and too good? What does he mean, overly righteous and, and, and overly wicked? Is he saying I should be in the middle? No, he's not saying that. He's saying we should be, avoid being overly righteous and overly wicked. And what he's acknowledging, we'll see as it's developed here in this passage, is that every human being is wicked in some way. We are fallen. But don't give in to that. Don't follow through on it. And yes, there is right and wrong, and it is good. But be aware of who you are and your need. And don't be overly righteous like in the way that William Morgan was. Now, that kind of flies in the face of what we might expect, right? Because Scripture talks about being zealous in our pursuit of righteousness, right? There's lots of verses like this. Philippians 3, Paul says, uh, 
Uh, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting is what, what is, lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead. And then Peter says in 2 Peter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And, and he goes on from there. Make every effort. Work hard. Strain. Strive to grow in Jesus. These verses Teach us these things. So, why is Ecclesiastes saying these things? And how does it fit in? How does it connect with these things? And is it speaking of maybe a different sort of righteousness here? Is it, is it maybe saying, don't be self-righteous? Actually, if you read through the passage in Ecclesiastes, I don't think it's saying that. It's not speaking of pretend righteousness or self righteousness. It's speaking of genuine righteousness because in the context it's speaking of wisdom, what, what is good and, and true. So it's not a pretend righteousness or a false righteousness. It's qualified in some other way. Now, we have to understand contexts. And we have to understand that we are to be students of all of Scripture. And there will be things in Scripture that seem contradictory in some ways, but they are meant to come alongside other truths and kind of hold us in attention of truth before the Lord. And this verse is one of those alongside these others. Now, there's other contexts in this verse we're going to get to. When Paul and Peter say these things, they are understanding that it's not you working hard, but there's something else going on in the picture here that has to do with you striving. An important qualifier. Again, we'll get to that as we go along. We should be careful uh, with Scripture and recognize there are verses that are meant to come alongside and they may not at first make sense to us. And, and we may struggle with them. And, and so we want to have a, a view of all of Scripture, to understanding all of Scripture, and being circumspect even in our understanding of, of Scripture and searching all of Scripture to understand. And, and so this verse is meant to function together with these other things to bring truth. And what the preacher is saying here is that in your desire to be wise and to be good, you can overdo it. You can work too hard. You can be too intense. You can forget God in the process. You can forget God in the process. You can not see that He is the one we should focus on. And so in verse 18, He gives us this core truth. It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Both of what? Both extremes. When we put God at the center, when we fear God, when we focus on God, He keeps us from pursuing wickedness, letting our, our fallenness dominate our lives and going too far, but also thinking, I've got to work so hard. I've got to make this work. I've got to use every hour of the day and every second of the day to be righteous. I've got to have those 15 questions I review every day if I really want to do it. It protects us from that, even though there's good motives there, there's the desire to be good and righteous when we forget about God and the fear of God and the centrality of God and the grace of God, we can overdo it. That's what he's getting at here. And this is so important for us to get. It, it, it certain, certainly seems at first glance to be like, well, I don't get this. What's he saying? But there's an important truth here. 
And there's a tendency in all of us to want to overdo this thing and forget God. Even though we're striving for something good. To not be God-focused. To be unrealistic about who we are and our fallenness and our need for God's grace. We can be too intense. We can actually be ungodly in our godliness. Isn't that an incredible irony? That's what the preacher is teaching us. We can be ungodly in our godliness. And so I want us to think through this and, and, and think through our lives. Let me ask you some questions maybe that will help you evaluate your own life as you follow Jesus. Are you able to enjoy resting from work and resting from ministry? Are you able to enjoy it? Or do you always feel like you need to be doing something? If so, maybe you are practicing ungodly godliness. Do you feel guilty or unsatisfied when you're not getting your to-do list done? Do you have any hobbies? Do you take vacations? Do you enjoy simply hanging out with good friends and good food? Or not? Those are some questions I could ask more to evaluate our lives and maybe if we are being overly righteous as Ecclesiastes puts it. This is a good lesson for us. Living life under the sun together. Now, the preacher wants us to understand that he's not saying abandon righteousness. He's not saying that at all. He doesn't want us to pursue wickedness. He recognizes that we are fallen. There's a weakness that's in us that we need to be rescued from by His grace. But He doesn't want us to go with that, to be overly wicked. And, and so He's pointing out wisdom throughout this passage. Verse 19, we're going to see, He goes back, wisdom gives strength to the wise man. So wisdom slash righteousness go together. It's a good thing. Don't hear what I'm not saying is kind of what He's saying. Understand there's a context here. Wisdom is still good. Righteousness is still good. But we can have an approach and an attitude to it where we actually ruin it and ruin ourselves. That's what he says here. The consequence of doing this is, is destroying yourself like William Morgan in the story. And there's a healthy place to be where we live in the fear of God and dependence on God and in His wonderful grace. That's what the fear of the Lord is. We find the, the safe place to be the fear of the Lord. And, and Ecclesiastes is written before Jesus comes on the scene. Yet the truth is still there. This principle of the fear of the Lord is there. But we know the fulfillment of the fear of the Lord. The, it's regard for God Himself. And we see God most clearly and fully through the Son, through Jesus. And it says in this text for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And let me rephrase that in light of the fuller revelation of the New Testament. The one who focuses on Jesus shall come out from both of them. The one who focuses on Jesus shall come out from both of them. You will avoid being overly righteous and overly wicked. You will walk in true godliness. For only in Jesus is there true righteousness. He alone is the righteous one. You are not. 
He alone is without sin. He alone is perfect in every way. He alone has truly fulfilled, completely fulfilled, finally fulfilled all righteousness. He alone has done it. And He took that perfect righteousness and sacrificed it on the cross for you. So that as you trust in Him on His behalf, you can be counted righteous through simple faith. You can be counted perfectly righteous. He alone is righteous. He offers that righteousness to you in sacrifice on the cross. And this wonderful exchange where He takes your wickedness, both in action and inherent wickedness, on Himself, dies in our place, pays the just penalty for it, puts it away for complete and full and eternal forgiveness and acceptance before God. And so in Him is forgiveness. In Him is righteousness. In Him is this ability. Now through union with Him, belonging to Him, and He who began a good work will finish it. And in Him, as you focus on Him, you come out from both the danger on the right and the left. Does that make sense? That's how we take this truth and and understand it and think of it in light of the fullness of who Christ is. William Morgan needed this truth. We need this truth. There is a way to rest and rejoice in our righteousness in Christ and enjoy the pursuit of our righteousness without overdoing it. And there's a way to rest and rejoice in the righteousness of Christ and know that we're forgiven for our wickedness and we don't need to give in to it. There's power. There's new life. There's freedom from that. So why go there? But live in this place focusing on Jesus and coming out from both extremes. Let me, perhaps, let me use an illustration that perhaps will help you think of it. Picture uh, a young child sitting with his dad on the family riding lawnmower. Maybe you've done this. The dad has a vast lawn to cut, and the dad knows how to do it just right to get that perfect checkered pattern to make it look perfect. But his son wants to be a part. And so his young son, maybe five years old, sits on his lap and holds his hands on the steering wheel, and the son thinks that he's helping out, but he's really not doing much. It's the the dad who's operating the machine and cutting the grass. And when they're done, the, the son is delighted to run to his mom and says, Mom, look what we did. Look at the lawn that we cut today. Now, if it was not for the dad, the lawn would be a catastrophe after the son got done with it. But with the dad and his work and what he's doing, the son participates, the child participates under the care of the Father. This is similar to our walk with God. Now, of course, first, we're brought into the family through Christ alone. There's nothing we do to earn our way into the family. It's through Christ alone, His righteousness, His death, His resurrection, and through simply putting our faith, trusting in Him, we're brought into the family. This is an illustration for being in the family now. And God wants to use us amazingly to be part of His kingdom extending. 
But if it were left to us, guys, we would drive the lawnmower into a tree. That's the reality. But he's in control. And he's at work. And he says, I want you along and I want to use you. And I want you to do your best to participate. I want you to do your best to help this lawn be cut the right way. He wants us to strive in a sense there, but to recognize that it's all by His grace through His presence with us. And we look to Him. We fear God. That's what fear God means. That we regard God. We revere God. We focus on God. We focus on Jesus as we live this life. I hope that illustration helps you understand what this text is telling and how it's calling us to walk in these ways. Well, let's follow the, the preacher as he continues, as he probes wisdom and foolishness as he continues through this section. Um, he reinforces again in verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So wisdom is important. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I still want to emphasize this. But then verse 20 goes to the other side. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Wisdom's important. Righteousness is important. But the reality is there's nobody who's truly righteous and truly wise. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth, not a righteous person in all the earth who does good and never sins. That person does not exist apart from God in the flesh. So this is a reality for us. The, the Bible teaches us, Romans 3, says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the reality of who we are. And the Bible wants us to know it. God wants us to know this reality that we might find a cure. So let me warn you about the approach to understanding yourself and humanity that wants to deny this truth and pretend that somehow you're good in and of yourself. That won't work. It's much better to admit what's true and what's wrong and find a real solution from God. That's what this passage is about. That's what the Bible's about. No one is righteous. No one is. We've all fallen short. And the good news though, focusing on Jesus, is even though that's true, Jesus has come. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the one who always obeyed. He always did what was right. He fulfilled all righteousness. He lived the perfect life. He lived to love His Father and to love others and to lay His life down for others as we all know we ought to do but fall short of. And Romans 3 puts it all together in such a wonderful way. Verses 23-24, through 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means to be counted righteous. To be considered righteous. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, through the rescue that is in Christ Jesus. These truths are put alongside each other and uh, furthermore, Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What good news. What good news for the person who acknowledges they need help. For the person that acknowledges that they're not righteous. Even though they'd like to be, we're not righteous. We fall short. 
I love what the preacher does here with this reality. He makes some real practical application in verse 21. It says this, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that a very poignant and applicable truth in relationship to this? It's similar to what we ended with last week. The reality is, why are you so defensive? Who are you trying to protect? This verse, this section in all the Scripture has already criticized you way more than anyone ever will. Matter of fact, if they only knew everything you've thought and done in your life, they would be scandalized. What they're saying is nothing compared. Even though it may not be true, nothing compared to the whole story. So why are you so defensive? Why are you so indignant about that criticism? Who do you think you are? No one's righteous. Why are you protecting yourself? And then the flip side, no one's praised you more than God Himself. And saying, I love you this much. And I have loved you from before time. I love you this much that I've given my only Son for you. You are my delight. You're the apple of my eye. I love you. He's laid his life down for you. He will finish the work. He will bring you home. He'll be with you every moment of the day. There's nobody that can praise you more than him. So why let criticism bother you? You yourself know that you've failed in this too. So relax a little bit on that. And rely on the Lord. He goes on to think more about this. Verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can, turn, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. So he's probing and trying to, I want to understand these things. I want to see, is there really a righteous person anywhere? Or is everybody truly wicked? What is wickedness? And what is goodness? And he's searching, he's thinking, and he's sharing with us his finds. And he says in verse 26, And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. This is similar to what we see elsewhere in Scripture and wisdom literature. In Proverbs, we see it, for example. Proverbs presents us wisdom in the form of two women. The, the woman who's called folly, who's foolish, and, and then the parallel with that, the adulterous woman. And the woman who is wisdom, Sophia. Wisdom personified, we see in the beginning. And then we see in Proverbs 31 as well. Proverbs 31 is the ideal woman. And by the way, You'll never complete that list. Ladies, just to let you know that. That's the ideal woman. That's the 15 things and more. They're on display. That's how the wisdom is projected in the book of Proverbs, as women. And so this isn't somehow saying, you know, there's women, this woman who's a problem. It's pointing to the woman who is folly. The woman who lives to seduce others. And the men, of course, who buy into that themselves. So it's a a general principle of living in foolishness and wickedness. 
And it's characterized by seduction, by using others to get something for yourself. Instead of serving others and loving others, it's using others. So the woman, and really the man who would be caught by her as well, is living this way. So that's, you'll see that as you look in Proverbs elsewhere, to, that that's what's being said here. And so he's saying, as I probed wickedness, I saw this terrible thing, this whole broken system of how men and women relate to each other as two parasites drawing from each other. And it's a tragedy. And sadly, much of our culture is driven by this mindset in terms of the relationship between the sexes. It's about what I can get, how I can control, how I can manipulate, how I can satisfy myself. It's the tragedy of, of Genesis 3 in the fall when, when God pronounced the curse, the result of their rebellion. He said the man will dominate and the woman will strive to dominate herself basically as well. There will be this fight between them and using their femininity, the woman using her femininity and the man his masculinity to get rather than to give. It's a tragedy. It's evil. That's what's being pointed out here. And this is the sad reality, but that is corrected in the life of Christ. Genesis 3 has its redemption in Ephesians 5. And, and in marriage, the right picture of this is a man and a woman and who they are masculine or feminine, laying their lives down for each other. Using who they are, how they're made by God to complement the other, to empower the other, to make the other success so that together they would image God. God made us male and female so that we would complement and together as we love each other, whether it be in marriage, in the, in the special case of intimacy there in marriage, or outside of marriage as well. Even though in marriage... Sexuality is to be a part of that outside of marriage. There's to be abstinence, but there's still to be masculinity and femininity in the community of God as men and women come together to lay their lives down for each other in community and with their strengths and with their femininity or masculinity, laying their lives down to image God among God's people. That is the alternative to this case here of the woman who is folly. So he's probing wisdom, he's probing righteousness, and he continues. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not find, found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, you're probably listening to that and being like, Wow. Is this like, is this like uh, throwing shade on women here? What's being said? Um, as you read it, you might think that. And we all know the Bible is just a book of misogyny, right? From beginning to end. Right? No. No. The Bible is an amazing book. From beginning to end, and by the way, from thousands of years ago, standing on these principles that Men and women are equal before God. Both the image of God. Both equally the image of God in a complementary way. And the Bible is consistent in that message from beginning to end. 
And it is radical in that message from beginning to end. And establishing those truths. The Bible is very consistent. So don't fall for that. Um, it is a shallow understanding of the Bible and a shallow understanding of history. That's not what it's about. It is a book that honors women along with men as made in the image of God. So what does the preacher mean then? Okay, if, if he's not going there, what's going on here? How do I understand this? How do we, how do we answer that, that question, that temptation maybe that's there? Is he, is he maybe anti-women? Is that what's going on? Well, a, a few ways to answer that. First off, this is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry employs parallelism. So it will say something and then say the same thing. Again, both the same point, but said in a slightly different way to emphasize things. So you can find it throughout Scripture. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1, if you could project that. This is parallelism, Hebrew parallelism. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. That's the woman speaking of who she is and her love with the man. So, I am a flower. I am a flower. That's what he's, she's saying. I'm a flower. I'm a flower. Um, but it's said, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. It, it's two flowers, right? In two different places. It's poetic. It's saying the same thing twice with a slightly different wording to emphasize the same point. That's throughout Scripture. That's very common. That's important to get so that we don't look at that and try to like, say, well, he's saying two different things. No, it's the same thing said poetically. That's what's going on here. And so, the preacher is saying, there's nobody righteous. Yeah, maybe one guy among a thousand. But no, none, none among women. Now, that, it's poetic. It's emphasizing the point that no one is righteous. And that's what he's going to go on to say. Now, you may ask, well, why did you pick on women? Why not flip it? Say, one woman among a thousand, no men. <laughs> that might be more accurate, by the way. Uh, the Bible is full of testimony of godly women, and the history of the church is full of testimony of godly women, right? Sarah, Miriam, Ruth, Esther, Deborah, Abigail, Huldah, on and on. But why would he pick this? And we don't know. It might be that this is, in fact, Solomon, who is the preacher. It looks that way as we look at the book. He never comes out and says that explicitly. But it looks that way. And I think we might understand why Solomon might have a little bit of a prejudice here. Because if you review Solomon's life, he didn't do too well in his choices and his regard for women. And that might be part of why he took this view. If we read about Solomon, he was very foolish. He was wise in many ways, but very foolish in his regard for women. He openly disobeyed God. He chose ungodly wives instead of being a one-woman man to a godly believer. So 1 Kings 11 tells us this tragic story. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. 
Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon really messed up. So he wouldn't be the best guy to ask about women. And that might be why he chose to pick on women instead of men. We don't know. But the main point here we need to understand isn't to pick on one gender versus the other. It's to say all of mankind is fallen. All of mankind. Verse 29, see this alone I found. I found this, I found that. This is what I found. That God made man upright. So God made man, made mankind upright. We're good as created, but something happens. And they have sought out many schemes. This is kind of like scheming, machinations of doing evil. Even though He made us upright, something happened. There's been a fall away from that. And now we have in us this scheming towards evil. This sad brokenness. So he's re-emphasizing what this whole passage is about, right? No one's good enough. No, not one. And yet the fear of God is the answer. We look to the Lord. We look to Him. That's how Ecclesiastes is meant to function in our lives. It points out, it prods us with, with the harsh reality we don't want to face. And it says, look, look at this. This is the problem here. But in that, it's meant to drive us back to God. To have us turn to Him. To cry out. And that's one of the things I think this passage should do. It should just make us say, Oh Lord, help me. Because I know where I can go. I can go way over here or way over there. I need You. I need Your life. I need Your truth. I need to look to You. Jesus says to us as we cry out, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. He shows us how to live. He rescues us. He's with us. 1 Corinthians 1 teaches us He is all that we need. It says, because of Him, speaking of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? Wisdom from God. His wisdom. If you're going to search for wisdom, you're only going to find it ultimately in Jesus. He's wisdom from God. Righteousness. Sanctification. He sets us apart. And redemption. He rescues us so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In conclusion, let me say, turn from your self-efforts and your intense focus and your quest for control, your appetite for success, and look to Jesus. On the other side, give up your greed, forsake your pride, repent of your selfishness, and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus today and find life and peace and joy and rest. Look to Jesus. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for who You are. And this is You speaking to us. And we're so glad that You correctly diagnose us, but fully give us a cure. So help us now by the power of the Holy Spirit and all that we do right now as we're before You, 
to look to Jesus, we pray. Amen.